Well, the Institute in Basic Life Principles, uh, shortened up to the IBLP, is touted as a non-denominational Christian organization that serves as an umbrella organization uh, for several Christian ministries established by William W. Gothard, Jr. in 1961. In 1961, the IBLP was known as Campus Teams. It then changed its name uh, to the Institute in Basic, uh, Basic Youth Conflicts in 1974. It's a little strange for us uh, in this particular day that we live in, but, but uh, we don't have to think too hard about why they might have changed that. Then, finally, uh, it changed to the Institute in Basic Life Principles in 1989. It's impossible, really, to, to measure its direct influence, and it's even more impossible to measure its indirect influence. However, in 2020, the organization claimed that more than 2.5 million people had taken what the IBLP calls its basic seminar. Over the years, its influence drew prominent politicians and mega-donors who endorsed and sat on its boards. The seminar advocated for... Uh, Christian patriarchal family structures, advanced training institute, homeschooling, uh, no media consumption, no dancing, no alcohol, and no blue jeans, so I would be out today, uh, was among <laughs> uh, other dress codes, uh, some of which existed to avoid the sin of lust. The irony, of course, was that the founder of the movement, Bill Gothard, while teaching Millions, strict sexual ethics, supposedly from the Sermon on the Mount, would resign in 2014 upon multiple sexual misconduct allegations. Although Bill said his resignation was for, quote, a violation of trust, end quote, his board said that Bill, quote, acted in an inappropriate manner and therefore was not permitted to serve in any counseling, any leadership, or any board role within his very own ministry. Oddly, while all that was happening in 2014, not too long ago, the poster family of Gothard-style living, uh, the Duggars, had been wildly popular on television for six years. Their 2008 to 2015 TLC show called 19 Kids and Counting was enjoying the praise of men. At one point in 2013, American uh, turned uh, or tuned, excuse me, in to watch their oldest daughter's wedding. Is, did anybody do that? Raise, oh, oh, oh. Hey, nobody wants to raise their hand, right? Uh, <laughs> if you know where this is headed, right? Uh, they, they, America tuned in uh, to, to the tune of 4.4 million people. That was its popular for popularity for just one, uh, just one event. The Duggars, as was proved by their television appearance, did not subscribed to everything that Bill Gothard taught, but were certainly close disciples of his ministry. And like Gothard's ministry, they would rise and fall the same way upon sexual misconduct of one of their family members, Josh. Effectively, Bill and Josh, like many hypocritical Christians from the past, looked righteous on the outside, but were found to be rotting on the inside. They, like all of us, needed to heed Jesus' words found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. 
you're visiting Capital City Church this morning, you join us as we study the life of Jesus as it is recorded in the four Gospels. Uh, we've been doing so for a little over a year now, and we find ourselves in the event of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is preaching to his primary audience, uh, which is his disciples, although there are some others who are around and they are listening. If you've been with us, you will remember that in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, Jesus describes the kind of people who will inherit one day the kingdom of heaven. In verses 13 through 16, he told his disciples to live like salt and light on the earth. In verses 17 through 19, he described his relationship to the old covenant. And in verses 20 through 48, which we just finished up after a number of weeks, Jesus taught that to enter the kingdom of heaven, one must be as perfectly righteous as God, leaving all of us hopeless for the entrance into the kingdom on our own. Last week in verses 43 through 48, we focused on one of the most difficult yet righteous acts for Christians to do. And that is to love our enemies as ourselves. The act, as a matter of fact, is so difficult that you and I could never do that on our own. And beloved, that is Jesus' point. We cannot do it on our own, right? We must become transformed by the Spirit of God. It is only then that we will be able to reflect Christ on this earth and enter heaven. So then we turn to chapter 6, verse 1. And there is a shift in the text here, although it is very common and we can't just change chapters, and there were certainly no chapters, and there were no small letters, and there were no periods or exclamation points or anything else in the original Greek. It was just all caps, all run on, and we had to go back, right, and decide. And sometimes that's helpful, and sometimes it's not. But here, chapter 6, verse 1, I think, uh, is, is a good break in the text for us to understand that there is a, a little change in intentionality. Jesus moves to ensure in chapter 6 that the righteousness of Christian practices is not hypocritical. Effectively, uh, Jesus warns Christians, beware of hypocrisy. It trades eternal rewards for personal glory. That's it. That's the big idea today. I could quit preaching right now and, and just say that, and, and hopefully you would meditate on that I, uh, uh, more than whatever you're going to eat for lunch, but, but this is the big idea. Jesus, beware of hypocrisy. Why? It trades eternal rewards for personal glory. What a sad trade, right? So it is, friends, that Matthew 6, 1 introduces a warning against Christian hypocrisy. I wanted to slow down for today and only cover this one verse because Jesus is making a transition, as I mentioned in the sermon. He has just taught what a born-again Christian's life should look like. In effect, he called his followers to live perfectly, which was many times more righteous than that of the scribes and Pharisees who he was dragging into the conversation, you'll remember, in verse 20 of chapter 5. But upon telling his disciples to pursue a perfectly righteous life, Jesus immediately warns them, beware of hypocrisy. Beware of it, right? He's, he doesn't say, don't live a righteous life. <laughs> Nowhere in the scripture does it say that, and we'll talk about that in a minute, right? He assumes that you're going to pursue a righteous life if you're going to follow him, right? He just says, now, because of that, because of your desire to live, live a righteous life and Follow me, beware of hypocrisy. 
In verses 2 through 18, which we're not going to get into today, we're going to split up and talk about those over the next few weeks, Lord willing. Uh, he is going to refer to the scribes as, and Pharisees' hypocrisy, effectively telling his disciples, do not be like them. Remember that Jesus would say this of them in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, right? Exclamation point. It's in the imperative there. For you are uh, like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Verse 28, a repeat, a typical Hebraism. Uh, so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now that's a way to win friends and influence people, right? Jesus' strong feelings about people who act one way on the outside but are truly different on the inside. And not just from some kind of sanctimonious righteousness. What is right and what is wrong, right? But the, the reality is, is that, that thousands upon thousands upon thousands, maybe millions of people over the years have, have thought that, well, if I just act a righteous way, I'll be going on to heaven. And Jesus' whole point in the sermon is to, to make sure that if you, you know that if you've ever lusted, you're going to hell. If you've ever hated, you're going to hell. There, there, your righteousness is filthy rags. That's the point of the sermon, right? Is to, to get us, to drive us to our knees, to understand that, that, that if this kind of living is going on in our lives, we need a new heart. We can't act religious on the outside and not have the Spirit of God living on the inside. He's, he's pushing everything to that choke point in his preaching. Amen? We can't be righteous on our own strength. And if we do it, it will at one point in time, whether you're Bill Gothard or Carl Picard, it's going to show up, right? <laughs> the sin on the inside will make its way out. Therefore, beloved Jesus, in warning his disciples, acknowledges that his followers will be tempted to be hypocrites. And beloved, there is nothing more the unbelieving world loves than when a known Christian acts worse than they do. Is it not true? It's the news everywhere. It goes viral on, on, on social media. We're, we're watching some Christians in Kansas go through this right now. Oh, look at those righteous people. They act so righteous, but, but their leader, he's, he's uh, got sexual allocations of, uh, of dealing or, or, or handling young, young girls. And they love to talk about that and why it justifies their unbelieving hearts. And why wouldn't it? Essentially, they say, <laughs> why would I do that? I don't even do that. I, why would I go to church? I don't even act that bad, right? It's Paul's justification in 1 Corinthians 5 when, when he's writing back to the church about the young man who's sleeping with his father's wife, right? And, 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 he, and they're asking, what should we do about this? And he's put him out of the church. The world doesn't even do that. Don't dirty up the name of Christ. This is what happens when, when hypocrisy plays out in, in a Christian's life. Friends, narrow is the way to heaven and wide is the road to hell. And we all say amen and amen. That's what Jesus said, right? But I would argue that the hypocritical moral failures of Christians is, is the pavement for that wide road. We sit out there and we pave it with our hypocrisy. We make it easier to get there. 
Jesus is warning here. Beware. Beware, right? Let's dive into this. Look there with me to verse 1 and notice that it starts with the verb, beware. You might underline this word and note in your margin that beware is in the Greek imperative mood. This uh, is one of the benefits of, of taking a little bit of time and, and learning a little bit about uh, the Greek language. And although it does work its way through into the English, it's, it's oftentimes uh, difficult uh, to, to see what is a command and what is not a command and what, what might be being highlighted and, and what is not being highlighted, what, what, what is meant to be temporary and what is meant to be ongoing. And this is one of those situations uh, that it's important for us to just lean in for a little bit uh, into this imperative mood. It means that Jesus used a form of the word of beware uh, different, right? We, we just have beware, right? But, but, but in the Greek, there's, there's all these extra uh, letters on the front and on the backside. It's not just beware. <laughs> That's not what it's saying. It's, it's, uh, uh, it comes across that way to us in the English, and we might say beware and maybe put an exclamation point uh, right after it to try and uh, bring this about. But uh, he uses the, a form of the word uh, that the hearer would know and the reader understands that immediate action was required. And that action was vitally important. We kind of get that from the word, but, but, but if you're a Greek reader, you're reading it and you're seeing the tenses and, the, and, and all of the nature of how the word was originally expressed. And, and, and it not only does it say beware, but it's beware exclamation point. The imperative mood is also used as a command all throughout the scriptures. And, and uh, uh, I didn't go, I wanted to do this, but for time's sake, I couldn't do it. But, but all throughout, you can imagine, we've just learned all these things about Christian living in Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 through 48. Every one of those is a command. It's all in the imperative mood. Do not hate, right? Imperative, don't, don't do it. But Matthew 5, 44, what we studied just last week says this, but I... Say to you, love. There it is, the imperative. You must do it. It is vitally important. Love your enemies. And pray. There it is. It's the imperative. You must do it. It's not an option. It's a command. It is vitally important. Pray for those who persecute you. And here, in verse 1, beware. Beware of this. Take note of this, you, you who are going to act and follow me in righteousness. Pay attention. This is going to tempt you. Beware, beloved. We must do this. It is vitally important. Beware it, it, it is to be in a state of alert or uh, to be deeply concerned about what Jesus is getting ready to say. So beware. Beware of what? practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. We're going to continue here uh, with taking a look, a slower look at the grammar of these things. And, and so in, as we do so, I want us to consider four, four different things in this first clause. In chapter 6, verse 1, clause A, there are four different things to consider, four different truths to consider. Number one, what it means to practice. Number two, what righteousness is. And number three, uh, who the men are. And finally, we'll look at the verb to be noticed. Are you ready? Let's go. 
First, I want us to look and I want us to notice that this warning is about practicing your righteousness. Practicing. Pay attention. Be alert. It's about practicing your righteousness. The Greek word behind our English word practicing is the the very common New Testament word poieo and is uh, most often translated as to do and in most of your translations unless you're reading the ESV or the NASB uh, they have maintained that word to do. Um, uh, but the NASB and, and, and the ESV have noticed something about uh, the word poieo. They've They've noticed that it's in the present tense, which means uh, beware of this that's ongoing right now. It's in the active voice in the same kind of notion there. It's actively going on, right? And so we have present, it's happening, it's actively continuing on, and then it's mood is how we parse uh, in the Greek is in the infinitive. And that's what the ESV and the NASB are picking up on. It's the infinitive. And we think of Buzz Lightyear to infinity and beyond, right? like the idea is it's ongoing and so rather than just say to do right uh, the SV and the NASB are they're noticing this infinitive it's a little different it it's saying this this practicing is present it's it's active and it's going on right it keeps on going and what is the action doing It is being done to be noticed by others. It's one thing to occasionally be tempted and fall into being self-aggrandizing, but it is quite a different thing to want the praise of other people and use righteous teachings to attain your own praise all of the time. Right? It's one thing. We're all going to fall into this, right? Speaking of that, as I was studying, I... Remembered years ago when Valerie and I were brand new Christians, uh, we came to that portion of the service that we were at not too many moments ago where the offering plate was being passed, and I don't remember exactly how much, but I know it was some minuscule amount of money that was in my wallet because we were poor and, and, you know, 22 years old and married. Um, But... uh, I took whatever that was out of my wallet, maybe it was a $5 bill or something, and I felt so proud of myself as, as if I was going to do God a big favor by giving this $5 bill when the plate went by. And, and as it was being passed, I, I, I remember you know, having it out in, in my hand and, and, and kind of looking at the person who's passing the plate down and the next person who's going to get it, and it's kind of like, watch me, you know? And I dropped this in there and as I said, as a, as a brand new believer, the Spirit of God convicted me so deeply for that. I'll never forget that moment, and I hope I don't forget that moment because the Spirit of God lives and works and acts in our life uh, in such a way that we don't practice that kind of unrighteousness. And why is God interacting with us like that? Because He knows, as we're going to get to here in just a few moments, right, that we are going to lose eternal reward for giving the wrong way. I wanted the praise of the next person. How foolish, right? It, you know, look at me, give my $5. What a stupid thing. You know, where the Lord uh, says uh, later when, when he's observing uh, the widow who comes up with two mites and all the, all, of the, uh, all, of the, all the rich people and all the scribes and the Pharisees, they're blowing their horn and they're dropping their money into the offering. She comes along and she 
puts her two mites in there, right? And, and Jesus, God in the flesh, turns and looks at his disciples and says, now I tell you the truth, that lady gave more than all of the rest of those. She'll get more in the kingdom of heaven in eternity than all these blowing the trumpets and looking so righteous. You see, friends, God is a judge of the heart. He doesn't care about how much you give. He cares how you did it. And I was guilty of that. It's one thing to do that occasionally, but here in our text, the impression is that this should never be an ongoing practice in a Christian's life. There's a warning. We cannot judge others' motives, and we shouldn't. However, when we see ministries like Bill Gothard's and Josh Duggar's, who received millions of dollars for years on end while advocating for morals that they were clearly unwilling to keep, it is likely that they uh, should have slowed down like we are this morning and, and considered the grammar of verse 1, right? And heeded the warning, beware of practicing righteousness to be noticed by other people. Now moving on to the second grammar consideration, depending on your translation, you might wonder why your Bibles uh, do not speak of righteousness in general, but specifically uh, some of them in the King James, kind of New King James uh, genre, will say alms or charitable giving there. And that's because some manuscripts have a different Greek word there. But the earliest manuscripts have dikaiosune there, translated as righteousness. Now nowhere in the Bible... And does it ever say that when a person becomes a believer, they are not expected to turn from their sinful lifestyle to follow the commands and teachings of Jesus? Scripture everywhere affirms that Christians are to aggressively and exponentially lay aside our sins, right, to become more like Christ. And I don't know what it is about uh, Christianity today that, that somehow, I guess it's maybe a, maybe a little bit of a uh, overflow of these big excursions of the Billy Graham Crusades and others, right, who, who went out and I, and I think faithfully preached the gospel, but, but never, uh, never said, how can we make you a disciple? <laughs> That's the command in, in, in Matthew 28, right? Not, not to preach the gospel, we need to do that, or we're not going to have anybody to disciple, but to make disciples, and what does it mean to be a disciple but to follow after the one who taught you, right? And, and the assumption in all of that is that, that righteous living would be there and we would want to know what the command of Jesus is. And then if the Spirit of God lives in us, then we would kind of want to walk in that commandment, right? But somehow, some way, we have sold this bill of goods, this idea that, that we can just preach the gospel, we say a prayer, we, uh, uh, and we just go about living the way we we uh, wanted to live, and, and it's just completely absent in the Scripture. In some of Jesus' last words to his disciples, he said in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, we kind of tend to think of that, or I do, as, as a person who, who uh, more like... Um, more like a commandment in itself, right? Well, I'm commanding you to love me. Well, that's a little hard, right? I mean, that would be weird if you were trying to get a mate or somebody, right? You find somebody attractive, uh, you know, love me. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, right? But listen, if you love me, here's, it's a test, right? This is how you know that you actually love me. 
you're going to keep my commandments, right? That's what's being said here. It's not an option. It's not a, I'll get around to it, right? Jesus is saying, if you actually love me, you're going to follow after me, right? And friends, where the command is true, so is its opposite. And it's always good and helpful for us to do this. In other words, we can understand that if we don't love Jesus, we will not keep his commandments, right? The two operate in the same world. I can't say I love Jesus and act like the world. It doesn't work. This is Jesus' sign to you. This is warning to you. Don't do that. You cannot say you love me and act like the world. It doesn't work. There must be repentance. There must be righteousness. There must be a desire to follow. Let me ask you to ask yourself which category you fit into. The one who keeps his commands, therefore proving your love, or the other? To say that we love God and, and, and make a little to no effort to follow the commands of Christ is, I promise, paving the road to hell. 1 John 5.3 says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And I love this qualifier. This, this keeps us from being hypocritical. And if you really want to know if you love God, his commandments won't be burdensome to you. So you're reading along, you're reading in chapter 5, and you're looking at what Jesus is commanding. He's the prophet like Moses. There's never been a human being like him on the earth, right? And and he's telling you this is what righteous living is like. Now, if you turn to that and you're just like, oh, you know, I can't lust anymore. Oh, I I can't hate anymore. Oh, I can't drink anymore. Oh, I can't whatever anymore. And it's burdensome to you. You don't love God. The Spirit of God is not residing in your life. This is the test John is giving, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome to us. And the negative of that, like I just mentioned a minute ago, if Jesus' commandments are burdensome, we do not truly love God. That's the logic, right? And 2 John 6 says this, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning. In other words, this hasn't ever changed. Right? This isn't new to follow after Christ. This is not new to walk in a righteous lifestyle, right? From the beginning, this is the commandment, right? That you should what? Walk in it. We understand that. Dear friends, what is my point in sharing this? In this text, Jesus assumes that those who follow him will live a righteous life. A life that pleases God, preserves the earth, and shines light upon it in here this morning and think you are going to heaven because you said a prayer, walked down the aisle, got baptized, made a commitment, or aced your catechism, but yet do not live righteously and do not have the desire to live righteously. I'm going to argue that you have believed a lie. You need to go back to the Lord. You need to go back to the Word. And maybe God did truly save you at, that, at some point in time. I don't know. We don't judge hearts. But we can judge fruit, and you should be a fruit inspector in your own life. And if there's no desire to follow God, no desire to love God, no, no desire to do that, you have got to begin to ask yourself, Jesus is warning, warning, beware, beware, beware. It can't be like this. Not for the Christian. Your friends, 
I pray that at this moment, if that's you, maybe you would turn even now or renew whatever commitment you've made to Christ. You see, friends, Jesus promised when he left that he would send God the Holy Spirit to take his place. We're so familiar with that as believers. And as much as we can clean up our act on the outside like a righteous, whitewashed tomb, if we have not been given the Spirit of God to live on the inside of it, it is only a matter of time before all that outside cleanness is going to go away. The real you will show up. The Scripture says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is given to every person who genuinely believes. You're a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 is going to say. And although genuine spirit-filled Christians still sin, the trajectory of their life will always be moving from less right righteousness to more righteousness. Not because they are so disciplined and, and, and act that way, but rather because it's Christ in them, right? Cooperating with their desire for obedience that is the hope of glory. It's, it's the proof, right? You can't do it on your own. You won't do it on your own. You can't make yourself come alive in Christ. You can try and follow Jesus' uh, uh, teachings. And, and like we said last week, the world would certainly be a better place if it would do so, and it would be a kinder place to live. But we would have missed the point if the Spirit of God has not come into our life, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead to, to make you a new creature. It would be silly of us to try and live a righteous life without the power of Christ in us. Jesus said that genuine believers will produce fruit. Some of them 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. But all will produce dikaiosune, right? Righteousness. This fruit of righteousness. So, beloved, we can understand Jesus is saying, beware of practicing godly living or righteousness. And not just in any old manner, but notice that this righteousness is being done as our third grammar consideration before men. Now, before men here is not gender specific. I think we pick up on that, but rather meant uh, to be understood as mankind. And an interesting fact, as I began to dig into this, um, that the Greek word behind men is anthropos. Uh, that's not too interesting because we get our uh, English word, right, anthropology, um, from it the study of mankind. And anthropos in this setting carries with it the idea, this was what was interesting to me, of an assembly of people by whom one is trying our fourth grammar consideration to be noticed by for their works of righteousness. So it's not just people in general, right? It's, it, the, the context kind of says it's, it's a people who have been gathered to notice you. The verb to be noticed is the Greek word theomai. One commentator rightly noted that this word's roots come from the same word that our English word theater comes from. Like a theater where there are people gathered to notice, to gaze upon, right, or to aggrandize the person who has drawn all their attention, right? The warning Jesus gives is don't use God's righteousness like theatrics to glorify yourself. Don't do it. In short, Beloved, beware of hypocrisy. Chapter 6, verse 2, 5, and 16, which we'll study over the next couple of weeks, Lord willing, 
Jesus calls practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them hypocrisy. He just calls it that. The Greek word behind our English hypocrisy is hypocrates. And this ancient Greek word did not take on a, a negative connotation. I don't think any of us here um, have never uh, not heard it in a negative connotation. Uh, and, and it really did not take on a negative connotation until the time of Jesus. And, and, and quite literally, uh, um, the reason is, is because Jesus said it's bad news to act like the hypocrites. And the hypocrites were these religious people requiring uh, a certain lifestyle of people, the scribes and Pharisees, who they themselves would not live. And so it took on this, this, uh, this negative connotation. But, but quite literally, the word means actor. If we, if we uh, translated the word instead of transliterated the word, it, Jesus would say, don't be an actor. That's what's going on there. Don't be an actor. Hippocrates. Don't be one of those. And what does an actor do but uh, put on a costume and act in front of people, in front of a gathered people? Remember that Jesus already used the word theomai translated to be noticed. And remember that theomai is where we get our word theater. So we have a theater in this text. We have uh, this people that are gathered to watch the men, right? And an actor. And Jesus is saying to his disciple, beware of theatrically acting like you are righteous to gain the praise of other people, to move yourself forward. Beloved, let me ask, have you become an actor? Adults, do you put on your costume in the morning, go to work, school, or worship, act righteously to make others think you are amazing, only to return home, watch filth on your electronics, and be angry with your wife, husband, or kids? If so, you're a hypocrite, a theatrical actor, on the outside, but full of uncleanness on the inside. And kids, you don't get off this, right? Kids are the best, especially teenagers. They start figuring out what's expected of them, right? I was in this category. And then I just act like this on the outside when my parents or my teachers or, or people around who are watching me, right? I act, but on the inside, I'm wicked and unrighteous and I'm seeking uh, the praise of people and, and all the sinfulness of life. If so, if that's you, young one, you're a hypocrite, a theatrical actor on the outside, but full of all uncleanness on the inside. And let me just give a warning to our parents. I so often see this happen in, in, in Christian circles. They begin to lay down the rules in their home when their kids are young because it helps manage your home and all these things, and that works pretty good while your kids are young. But then they start to develop into the teenagers, and if you don't begin to recognize that they are becoming a willful person, they're just going to follow your rules on the outside, and they're going to take all their sin underground, and then they're going to go off to college or something else, and they're going to leave the faith, and you're going to say, what happened? And it's because you thought you had it all figured out. You, you set all the rules, they followed all the rules, but, but then left to themselves, all the wickedness that was really on the inside just started to come out. Let me warn you, beloved, uh, you must disciple your kids. You must disciple your kids. You've got to realize that setting down a bunch of laws, right? Even, even when we think about the Old Testament, 
right? The, the laws weren't to make the person glorious. They were to show the person their sin. And so as, as, as we walk with our kids and we, and we talk with our kids and we, and we have good, righteous rules with our kids, that's fine. But, but you don't want to create an atmosphere where they just hypocritically put on their costume and act like everything's fine. No, we walk with them. We talk with them. We're honest with them. And, and if you want to make it even worse and cause their sin to go even further underground, well, you go ahead and sin in front of them and act like you've got it all together and never say you made a mistake and find out what your kids do. I can promise you what's going to happen. They may not say it out loud because they love and they respect you, but in their hearts they're saying, you're a hypocrite, you're a hypocrite, you're a hypocrite. I can't wait to get out of this house. I can't wait to get out of this house. And when I do, I'll live like I want to live. You can't do that. Friends, you have to recognize the season your kids are in and, and rules are good, but, but when they become to be that age where they, they are starting to ask the questions and, and watch you, you've got to walk with them and you've got to be humble enough to say, I sinned. If they can't watch you uh, uh, confess your sin, confess your hypocrisy, how are, how are they going to learn to do it? They won't. They'll just shove you in the category and they'll pave their way to hell with your example. Not long ago, I broke Valerie's heart with my hypocritical Christianity. We had some conflict, as all couples do, and I interacted uh, with an impatient, disrespectful spirit in a raised voice, right? Short, curt, angry. And what she asked me afterward was, cutting to my heart. She asked, noticing and sitting with me and in different seasons of people being very difficult to us or the church or, or in their own lives, she says, how is it that in difficult situations with others, you're so patient, you're so respectfully spirited and calm voice? My heart sank. And why? She was right. She was right. Although she was way too respectful to call me a hypocrite, she would have been right to do so. She would have been right to do so. The only answer I could give her was the truth, and that is that I cared more about what other people thought of me uh, uh, than what she thought of me and that what God thought of me. You see, beloved, I, I put on my costume and I acted the right way in front of others, but at home, I took the costume off, right? And, and the real Pastor Carl, the sinner, showed up. was on full display. One commentator quoted the early Christian theologian Augustine who said this of hypocrisy, the love of honor, or we could say the love of being noticed, that hurts you a little bit more. The love of being noticed is the deadly bane of true piety. Other vices bring forth evil works, but this brings forth good works in an evil way. That's powerful, isn't it? Beloved, this is what Jesus warns against. A life acted out may impress people, but does not fool God. And that is what Jesus, uh, in the remainder of verse 1, in, in part B of this part, or clause B, says, look there, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Notice now, otherwise, this is it. If you do it, if you, if you do this to be noticed by them, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. 
Notice, friends, Jesus does not tell his disciples that they will lose their salvation. Keep this clean and clear in your mind, but rather their eternal reward. The play, the Uh, To play the hypocrite is to exchange the temporal praise of people for the eternal reward of heaven. The Apostle Paul affirms Jesus' teaching when he wrote this uh, to the early church, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15. For no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is in Christ Jesus. So there's our salvation. No other foundation can be laid for salvation. Now, what are we to do with it with our righteous acts? If any man builds on the foundation, this is our righteousness, right? With gold, right? We would assume that gold would, 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 would last um, and survive a fire and silver and precious stones or wood, hay, or straw. Whatever you build with, right? Each man's work will become evident. For the day, that's the day of judgment, will show it because it is, Uh, is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built upon it, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, we would all pray that every hypocritical Christian leader that has ever walked this face of the earth and got caught in some horrific sin, we we would not sit around and hope that, well, I hope they go to hell for that. No, right? We want to believe that they had a genuine uh, that they had a genuine conversion, right? We, we want to hope that they had a genuine conversion. We don't want to hope that anybody would go to hell, right? At the same time, it very well could be that people like Bill Gothard and and so many hundreds of others that we're aware of, right, have built their entire ministries, worked their entire lives building with wood, hay, and stubble. And when the fire comes, it will all burn away. There will be no reward in heaven. That's the warning. Eternity is a long time to enjoy your rewards. Amen? And it's a long time to not have them. Amen? Beloved, this warning, as we finish here, uh, this warning that Jesus is giving his disciples is the introduction to three examples of hypocrisy that we're going to consider over the next few weeks. In verse 2, Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites in your offerings, your giving, right? Who do it to be honored by men, they have their reward. In verse 5, don't be like the hypocrites when you pray, they do it to be seen by men. They have their reward. And finally, in verse 16, don't be like the hypocrites when you fast. They do it to be noticed by men. Truly, Jesus says, they have their reward in full. They have it. They're going to get a reward. It just won't be eternal. People will think they're cool. They'll look nice. They'll tell them nice things about their hair and how shiny their shoes are and all those things. And and all those things will be true. And that's all they're going to get. Jesus' reward, or that's Jesus' teaching here on beware. I hope this slowing down has allowed us to understand Jesus' warning better. There are not many of us who will rise to the influence of a Gothard or a Duggar. And that is probably good, as Jesus is going to try us with fire, and it's going to reveal our motives. 
That's why the Word of God says the meek inherit the earth. Remember that he said of that trial, that judgment in Matthew 19.30, but many who are first. So interesting in the tenses here. Who are right now, right? Who are first. Future tense will be last. And the last, those who thought not much of themselves, right? Those examples that Jesus gave of the the man who went to the prison and gave a cup of water, right? And and, and Jesus rewards him. and And the person can't even remember that they did it. I don't even remember this, Lord. He's like, yeah, but you, you get rewarded for it because I remember it. <laughs> I remember it. Beloved, each of us will, will suffer uh, much loss, no doubt, in the judgment. We'll suffer much loss of eternal rewards in judgment if we do not heed the words of Jesus. Beware of hypocrisy. It trades eternal rewards for personal glory. Let's pray.